listening to the Renegade Economist, investigating monopoly profits, great corruption, and the policy solutions demanded. Geeky but essential, the tools to the fairest and most efficient economic system await. With your host, Carl Fitzgerald. Welcome to the Renegade Economist podcast number four. Today, we're digging further into Georgist economics, trying to understand how economic analysis has given a free pass to monopolists. How can monopolists get away with uh, blue murder? It's happening all over the place. And so much of that is to do with the beneficiary principle. But let's get to that because how much pain can you take before you become a tax geek? Because after all, it's easier to be radical in a suit. Perhaps it's also easier to change the tax system than to pay off a 40-year mortgage. That's where we're going, ladies and gents. Uh, 40-year mortgages are on the table and it seems that alongside throwing your super into the real estate pyramid game, uh, we're going to be uh, on the treadmill towards multi-generational mortgages. These are incredible times. And you just have to think how with a quick search, we can be in touch with virtually any powerful person on the planet with just a few keystrokes. We can multitask on public transport. We can turn things off with a flick of a switch energy on call but why is the water undrinkably warm at airports particularly australian airports that have been privatized how's this one we have the technology to produce 10,000 plants every three days with just three people on five percent of the farmland and this can be energy neutral but still people die of starvation what about underwater farming the use of kelp and so forth, where we could produce three times more food than land-based activity while soaking the acidification of the seas, threatening 60% of our oxygen. But unfortunately, there are few incentives to encourage this vital work. And these incentives are directed not by some new measure of gross national happiness. That's looking at what happens after the fact. I'm interested in directing behavior before it occurs. So that's where the tax system comes in. And to get the tax system behaving in the sort of manner that reflects the ethics we all like of leaving as much and as many for others, of uh, being kind to other people, all those core basic issues, the golden rule, they call it, treating others as one would wish to be treated themselves. That's what we'd love to see our economic system doing, but the invisible hand is leaving incredibly large fingerprints on this planet, on our own abilities to survive since this neoliberal era has really picked the eyes out of classical economics and so much of it comes back to uh, grasping what we call the beneficiary principle and it provides an important lens for analyzing how our tax system works from an equity basis so often we hear of efficiency well dear renegades here is an equally important 
a filter to apply as a global inequity continues. The beneficiary principle essentially sums up that people should pay tax in accordance with the benefits they receive from society. And these benefits aren't necessarily tied to income-based benefits, but property-based benefits. And this is where the importance of an effective tax base is ever so important. Adam Smith gave us the four canons of taxation. And uh, the first one he named was the canon of equity, where he basically said that sacrifice of all citizens must be equal. He said, the subjects of every state ought to contribute towards the support of the government as nearly as possible in proportion to their respective abilities. That is, in proportion to the revenue which they respectively enjoy under the protection of the state. So that's pretty well sums up the beneficiary principle there. Smith also went on to say we need uh, uh, certainty. It was the canon of certainty. And that summed up that a tax which an individual has to pay should be certain and not arbitrary. Number three was the canon of convenience, of ease. A good taxation policy must be convenient for the taxpayer because they have to forgo purchasing power, making sacrifices at the time of the tax, so the government should see that the taxpayer suffers no inconvenience. For example, back in the day, any form of agricultural type land taxes should be collected only after the harvesting has been done. Now, number four, the canon of economy, representing efficiency. Smith wrote, the gables, aids, traits, domain and tobacco taxes are collected in most of the provinces. These are much more wasteful and expensive to administer. And you'll note there that the beneficiary principle was the first one mentioned and the efficiency principle the fourth one. Look, let's just uh, line this one up because your dinner table tax geek victory speech should uh, ensure you cover these bases because words such as regressive, inefficient and poorly targeted taxes are all useful tools in winning over your arch conservative uncle, but this term will etch into his memory dead weight costs and dead weights represent the cost of collecting the tax it's a measurement of the distortions upon economic behavior in terms of the amount and type of output that would occur if there was no tax so when we look at our tax system today stamp duties are estimated by some to cost 70 cents for every dollar raised company tax 40 cents payroll tax 41 cents. These are dumb ways to tax because so much money is lost in the compliance of filling out the paperwork and sending it in. So when it comes to taxing monopolies, we have to look at that canon of equity. And what it does is really flatten out this pyramid society where monopolists can earn what we call unearned income that is income earned beyond the cost of production which includes a reasonable rate of return on one's investment so these unearned incomes are uh, greatest in areas where scarcity can be manufactured 
And this also leads us to the difference between price and value. Price is what a speculator, a monopolist uh, can extort from the market, whereas value represents, uh, in terms of land, for example, what can be earned from that location, whereas price represents what the property speculator can extort from the market over time. They buy and wait and hold until just the right time. When I first came here 20 years ago, there was nothing but natural surroundings, unseen by white man since oh, before time began. First thing I did, I bought 15,000 acres of land. Second thing I did, I started a radio station and a newspaper. Why? Morris J. Minifield. The fictional character who owned that 15,000 acres really didn't have to do much, did he, to uh, sit on those sites and uh, wait for them to go up in value over time. As land is a gift from the creator, the supply was uh, freely provided and therefore any price above zero is seen as an economic rent and unearned income that can be taxed without deterring supply, only encouraging it. He really didn't do much to create that land. It's the growth of the community that leads to the increase in locational value. So it really should return back to the community. And the beauty of what Adam Smith discussed in those canons of taxation is that he equated two important principles, that of vertical equity and the beneficiary principle that there should be some equity across income groups and that the repayment of uh, benefits received to property owners should also be commensurate with the services they receive. So with land as the ultimate monopoly, where the ownership of a piece of land is unique in that there is no other GPS location on the planet quite like it with its particular advantages. And because it's provided at least cost, we can tax it and it will not deter the supply of land. It will actually encourage it onto the market. That's why we report on these vacancy findings so often. We know the big boys are slowly drip feeding this land the apartments, whatever it is to us, uh, at ever higher prices. And whenever there's a pricing correction, all of a sudden the land supply disappears and they choke the market until prices increase again. That's just what we're seeing here in mid-2019. Auction levels have fallen from some 1,000, even up to 1,200 in most weeks, it was incredible over the last three or four years, and now we're back to 400 auctions a week, and everyone's saying, well, the market is corrected. Well, the market has been choked. And yeah, unless you become a tax geek, uh, you know that 40-year mortgage is going to turn into a 50-year mortgage in another decade. So, so sad. So on that uh, canon of uh, economy on efficiency uh, and deadweight taxes, we've talked about stamp duties costing up to 70 cents, but why on earth do I keep harping on about these land taxes? Well, because it's recently been found in a, 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 a Treasury white paper when uh, Joe Hockey was treasurer back in about 2015. They actually found that land taxes are the only tax that have a negative 
deadweight cost. That means it's a positive contribution to the community because it taxes foreign investors who own our land. And you cannot hide land in a tax haven. So because of this broadness of the tax base and the fact that foreign investors will be forced to contribute to the Australian economy, it's actually the only tax that can add to our economic efficiencies. And in terms of these deadweight costs, Prosper's own Brian Kavanagh has calculated uh, the cost not only of raising taxes through uh, these regressive inefficient means, but also the cost to growth in terms of the boom bus from uh, so many land price led busts. When we consider that monopoly power is about reducing supply to increase prices above the cost of production, uh, it's important to note that uh, Brian calculated this cost to the economy of $2.34 for every single dollar raised in terms of how much better off we'd be if we kept land prices lower and the economy more stable. And remember, when that happens, when we reduce uh, the returns to land from uh, some 10-15% back to a more reasonable 5 or 6%, then the keeping up with the Jones mentality that drives so much of the growth mantra, the whole economy can slow down and uh, uh, we don't have to throw ourselves into such debt and the pressures of compound interest do sub- subside somewhat. It's the end of the world as we know it. I feel fine. Good morning, slaves, and welcome to 3CR. This is a stimulator, and whenever I want to get some radical propaganda, I listen to 3CR, 855 AM, Melbourne. And this mad, mad world we live in sees a system where we socialize our work through income taxes, but privatize the community-created benefits of living in an attractive neighborhood through ever-increasing property prices. That's where that uh, quote from Joseph Stiglitz that rent is the secret tax the wealthy charge the poor comes from. And the point is, look, we're already paying this tax in the form of ever-higher mortgages. Mortgage debt is a blatant abuse of easy credit combined with barely taxed land, which, due to its locational scarcity, increases in price over an above what our wages uh, are uh, growing at. Therefore, we're lumbered with this system where we just can't keep up and people are going down the easy path and blaming foreigners for everything rather than looking at the big, broad structural issues that are undermining our economy. So instead of blaming foreigners, we could, if we really grasp what a land tax does, we could channel the naturally rising locational value of land away from the banks and towards giving us all a tax cut. In the process, the cost of goods would fall as the 125 taxes we face today are reduced in place of a handful of taxes on land and natural monopolies. And one of those natural monopolies I'd love to tax, I'm sure you would too, is Transurban. How about we look into this Tollmasters licensing fee I've mentioned in the past? 
Transurban are the toll road specialists that own the majority of Victorian and New South Wales tollways. They own three or four tolls in America as well. And they're a master at both extending their monopoly interests whilst minimising taxes. So what we have to do to develop a tollmaster's licensing fee, and it's pretty much the same with any natural monopoly, is to look at their customers, the number of vehicles per day and the average daily spend and multiply that over 20 years to uh, give an indication of the value of this monopoly. Some may argue we should limit that to 12 years rather than 20, but somewhere between 12 to 20 years. Now, once we have that valuation, and let's just say it's a billion dollars, the state could impose a 10% tollmaster's licensing fee on the asset. This would deliver $100 million to state coffers. And importantly, there'd be no loopholes. This would meet Adam Smith's uh, canons of taxation on the fronts of simplicity, efficiency, equity, and certainty. And importantly, uh, assets should be valued yearly, implying that if they increase in value, the owners will pay a higher tax. Now, unfortunately, with Australia's uh, petroleum resource rent tax, those of us who love our beer pay about three times more in tax than uh, these giant multinationals that are ripping the oil out of the ground. So how's that? We pay more in tax on beer than uh, we'd claim on uh, oil rents. One of the common misnomers used to shoot down the taxing of unearned incomes of these economic rents, these monopoly rents, uh, some of the different terms we use, uh, is that... uh, A tax on iron ore, for example, will make Australian products uncompetitive because uh, those companies will have to increase the price of iron ore. But if other countries aren't facing similar tax burdens, we basically need to understand that uh, all companies are trying to maximise their profits already and so we're charging at the market price. So if the BHPs and Rio Tintos of the world want to try and pass on the tax, all of a sudden their customers will look to purchase from uh, Brazil or India or some other nation. So uh, that's why taxes on economic rents are seen as so powerful because uh, really they can't be passed on. They have to be taken off the bottom line from that lucky oligarch. That's what we need to see. Because so many things are being monopolised, aren't they? So we need this practice to fight back from this rampant privatisation era where Australia is one of the few nations where our airports are being privatised. No wonder the water is so warm. They want to force us into buying $5 bottles of water from one of uh, their retailers there that are no doubt paying rents through the nose. Of course, uh, it's been well investigated by the ACCC on how the airport monopolies have jacked up the car parking rates to extract even more unearned incomes from we poor consumers. 
Other areas, of course, you're well aware of that have been privatised, the power generation and distribution, ports and even the land titles office. And there was a good one uh, where in the lead up to the privatisation of the land titles office, uh, conveyancing duties were uh, ramped up, I think, by about 10 times. It was incredible. Stevedoring rents at the Port of Melbourne were increased, uh, I think, by 200%, whilst the state battled to reduce uh, land tax bills for the proposed new owner by uh, fighting the land valuation and saying, look, uh, it includes too many improvements. Uh, we should be valuing this land as if it was a marsh back in the early 1900s. So those sort of manoeuvres in the privatisation process are all used to add value to the sale price where this revenue from the privatisation is used for relatively short-term projects, often inspired by election promises. Thus, the Andrews administration here in our state of Victoria have become specialists at this. The Liberal Party announced in the lead-up to the, I think it was a 2015 election, they were going to privatise the land titles office. We couldn't believe it. But Andrews won, and then, of course, uh, they privatised that office. In the lead-up to the 2018 state election, the Liberal Opposition Party proposed the privatisation of our sewerage system. There's barely anything left to privatise. Well... Let's see if uh, Andrews privatises that in the coming years. Wouldn't that be horrific? So whilst we talk about the importance of these canons of taxation, we also need to remember the accuracy of our tax base. And this comes back to the, the functions of production. Applied labour onto land produces capital. And the combination of all three of those factors produces our nation's GDP, but when we think of uh, the incidence of taxation, just consider uh, the taxation of goods leads to prices going up. If we tax capital, if we tax companies, they threaten to leave. Thus we see giant companies like Amazon engaging in taxation negotiations with various city states in America looking for tax discounts before they will set themselves up in that city, quite unfair. If we tax jobs, then what happens? Unemployment increases, but if we tax land, land prices fall in many areas. And that's because of all of those speculative vacancies we talk about, all of those empty bedrooms, all of the uh, single-storey properties in prime locations near train stations and whatnot. Somewhere along the line, we're going to have to get serious and recognise we need to build up rather than out. We need to get our tax base right. We shouldn't need to tax labour. We don't need to tax capital or goods. We can tax just monopoly, monopoly interest. That's where the 0.01% earn all their money, capital gains through property rights in natural monopolies, be that water, be that land, be that geospatial orbits around the Earth. Coming up, it's going to be the claiming of asteroids and the minerals upon them. We had a fascinating talk recently on who owns outer space. Check out that YouTube in our show notes this week. So, the distortion in 
focusing on efficiency rather than equity is a huge issue we really need to get grips on. And in the online magazine from Merion West, uh, I read a fantastic article recently called When Marx Attacked the Single Tax by Darren Iverson. And he writes, Georgism dissolves socialism. It is pro-worker and pro-capital at the same time. This is impossible for the socialist who believes to his core that labour can only win if capital loses. So not only have we had this focus on efficiency, then the left have focused on labour versus capital, totally ignoring the power of monopoly. Very frustrating. And Iverson writes, when reading Progress and Poverty, Marx was faced with the charge that he'd mistaken a symptom for the disease. While Marx claimed that capital exploits labour, George argued that monopoly, land monopoly, exploits both labour and capital. It declared that the project to end slavery was not complete. Chateau slavery had been abolished, but industrial slavery remained. Land is fixed in supply, vulnerable to monopoly. Land is, in fact, a precondition of labour and capital. We must all monopolise a certain amount of land in order to exist. So demand for land is guaranteed. It is a captive market and we all bid for land. You cannot say these things about capital. Poverty, inequality and unemployment are all caused by a tax system fatally incompatible with capitalism and all fixable by doing no more than modernising that system. Well, there we go. That sums it up beautifully. So in summary, we are all beneficiaries of life on earth, but only some get to benefit from the improvements in society at a first order magnitude. That is uh, the gains that attribute to location, to land near new community gardens, near funky cafes that your friends have created, near even a piece of uh, Banksy's graffiti. They all drive land prices higher and higher. And uh, for so long, that's why it's been seen as the natural funding base for government to tax land and land-like assets, such as our scarce power generation utilities. When we do that, tax avoidance goes out the window. When we do that, it draws away the power of these immense capital gains through various forms of property flipping. And when we do that, it simplifies the tax system so it gets easier to start small business. So remember that next time you're having a, a dinner table uh, pitchfork battle with your uh, archaic uncle. These are uh, useful tools to remember in an era where inequity on all fronts is driving many people to desperate means rather than rational thought. My name's Carl Fitzgerald. Check out the show notes at prosper.org.au. I'll be with you on the fourth Wednesday of next month.